My name is Dr. Nate Shannock. And my name is Merrick Egbert. This is the official podcast of the Els for Autism Foundation for Autism. We call our podcast this because it's a play on our foundation's name, and Merrick and I are both terrible golfers. Well, we love how golf has become such a transformative tool to helping people with autism. When I'm not on the podcast, I'm a part of our growing research team and a tennis coach. And when I'm not part of the podcast, I'm an administrative assistant filling in the gaps of each department like Lou. I am also autistic. So this is our 24th episode of the podcast, Celebrating World Autism Month, with special guest Julie Lobdell, our ADT coordinator, and Jim Hogan and Dr. Carrie Magro, members at large on our advisory board. What we hope to do is to present news and updates about our foundation, interviews or feature stories that play a big role with us and with the community as a whole. Speaking of which, we also have our Today in the World of Autism segment, where we posit the news and current events reflective of the world we live in today. Also check our show notes for websites, resources, and other groovy things we would like to have on the written record for all of you for autism fans. So here are some news and updates about the foundation. Tune into our last episode, episode 23, where we talked to Dr. Aaron Lazat, our director of programs, and, Tace, and Tracy Cohn, a long-distance runner, author, self-advocate, and that episode's special guest. We spoke about women with autism, how important it is to get the proper diagnosis, autistic savantism, a bill in Nebraska, an Irish self-advocate, and a contestant on The Bachelor's Discovery of her autism. Make sure to listen to the whole program to get an idea of what we were doing as a foundation during that time and learn something new about the autism community for our Today in the World of Autism segment. During the the third week of April, it is National Volunteer Week, which was first signed as a presidential proclamation by Richard Nixon in 1974. Ever since each U.S. president has endorsed the establishment of the week by issuing a new proclamation. While I'm not the president, I will proclaim that volunteers are very important for us as a foundation. While much of the work we do around the foundation is done by the staff, it would be remiss as my position of coordinating our volunteers to say that our volunteers haven't also been the backbone of what we do too. In a long list of programs from recreation to our adult services department, we've had a long list of volunteers serve with us. It's a great way to work out those hours and be a greater part of the local community too. It also teaches others how to be tolerant and to accept those who are different from us. If you would like to celebrate National Volunteer Week, come and volunteer with us. We still have open positions and we'll probably be looking for some for our summer camp program in July. As usual, I will share the link to our volunteer page on our show notes. April is the most important month for our foundation because it is the month when the world celebrates or at least acknowledges the reality of autism and the people who have it. While it has been called Autism Awareness Month or Autism Acceptance Month, due to people like fellow board member Mike DeMauro of the Advisory Board, we are inclined to call this month World Autism Month. On our website is a whole stratosphere of what we are planning to do to celebrate. From givebacks to partnerships to social media campaigns to our annual 5K Roots and Ruts along with all in autism, we are hoping to do what we can in bringing everyone together to acknowledge autism. The link will be in our show notes.
On Monday, April 4th, I was interviewed and gave a speech about the groundbreaking of the adult services building. In my messaging, I served as an example of a successful adult with autism and as a role model for others to understand what growing up with autism is like. I also gave my reasoning as to why the adult services building will be very important to everyone interested. I mentioned about the value of employment and work, how even at the beginning of time, mankind had to work and had to value work in doing what they did due to the necessities of others. That virtually nobody behind in that micro work should be valued as it lessens the burdens of potential co-workers. I also mentioned my belief that autism doesn't disappear when one grows up, but rather may still need supports the kind that an adult services building can provide. It's great that even in these uncertain times, the need to be charitable and generous is not lost in our population. No matter what we face, we can still prevail. And it's up to all of us to see that our mission isn't clouded or fogged by external circumstances. And tune in for our two major interviews. Keep tuned in. All right. So let's get started with our um, interviews. So tonight for our interview with the advisory board, we have two members to interview, Dr. Carrie Magro and Jim Hogan. So for our first special guest, Dr. Carrie Magro is an award-winning professional speaker, best-selling author and autism consultant to the HBO series, Mrs. Fletcher, that aired last in fall 2019. He started professional speaking probably more like 11 years ago via the National Speakers Association and has spoken at over 900 events during that time. In addition, Kerry is CEO and president of KFM Making a Difference, a nonprofit organization that hosts inclusion events and has provided 86 scholarships for students with autism for college and counting since 2011. In his spare time, he hosts a Facebook page called Kerry's Autism Journey that now has 205,000 Facebook followers where he does on-camera interviews highlighting people impacted by a diagnosis to break down barriers in our community. His videos have been watched over 35 million times. Carrie's best-selling books, Defining Autism from the Heart, Autism and Falling in Love, and I Will Light It Up Blue have all reached Amazon bestseller lists for special needs parenting. He has also released a new book in February called Autistics on Autism, Stories You Need to Hear About, What Helped Them While Growing Up and Pursuing Their Dreams. He is based in Hoboken, New Jersey. And I'd like to welcome Dr. Magro to the program. But we also have Jim Hogan here, who is our second special guest. Jim Hogan is an advocate for change and a strong representative of what is possible for people on the spectrum. A self-taught computer scientist at the age of 16, Jim found his passion for working in leadership positions in corporate America. Throughout his career, he has engaged in advocacy and supported HR departments to better understand the needs of neurodiverse employees. Jim has willingly taken on the role of peer mentor and support to many young professionals with autism who are struggling to enter the workforce. With his powerful voice and advocacy for change and acceptance, he has led the way for hundreds of professionals with autism who entered the workforce behind him. Jim currently works as a vice president of accessibility and technology at Google. And thank you so much, Jim, for being here too. Thanks for having me. 
So <clears throat> I would like to get this interview started with uh, Dr. Macro. Um, Nate, the first question is your question. So would you mind ask, asking it of Dr. Macro? Yes, of course. First of all, thank you both for, for joining us this evening. This is quite a dynamic duo of an interview that we get to do. Uh, so thank you. Um, my first question, um, I was hoping that you, you could um, speak a little bit uh, about the role your parents and therapists played in your development and helping you to become uh, the person you are today. Yeah, sure. Um, so Nate, uh, I think there was another question that was going to go in there, but I'm more than happy to answer that question for the time being. Uh, so uh, yeah, no, my, my parents played a pivotal role. I received 15 years of occupational physical speech, music, and theater therapy. And I was not speaking till I was two and a half before being diagnosed with autism at four. And Dealt with a lot of challenges, uh, and my parents really took the bull by the horns, if you will, and really branched out trying to get early intervention services, even though it took 18 months to get a formal diagnosis of autism. But my parents became two of the greatest advocates I could ever ask for. And now I have a saying that I share in the autism community is that autism doesn't come with an instruction guide. It sometimes comes with a family who will never give up. My parents met me where I was in my development and it made all the difference to where I am today as a public speaker, author, and autism irritated consultant. And I'm just so thrilled. I share a little bit about my early journey in my new book, Autistics on Autism, which came out on March 29th, uh, about my parents and how they were able to help me, especially as a young child. Yeah, that's, uh, that's terrific to hear about um, how impactful they were in your development. Um, it's something that, that we do often hear on this podcast, but it's always, um, it's always interesting to hear about the unique situations and I'll, uh, I'll pass it over to you here, Merrick. So, so what I think is uh, very important is if you could tell our audience about your organization, KFM Making a Difference. Yeah, sure. So uh, I was in college and I heard about nonprofits for the first time, not knowing what they meant <laughs> at all. Uh, and I realized that a lot of autistic children who were transitioning to adulthood were struggling. And I thought to myself, gee, th there's really not enough being done to help those with adult autism. So just as a young kid in his 20s, I filed the paperwork and I started a nonprofit called KFM Making a Difference. And we now today, uh, after being around for nine years, have given out 100 partial scholarships for autistic students to go to college. Our next scholarship deadline is April 26th of this year. Uh, and we've had over 250 applicants. And uh, we've also done a lot of inclusion events. We host sensory friendly events during the holiday season. 
uh, in addition to disability advocacy-related initiatives and peer mentoring for autistic adults and disabled adults. One of the great things about our new book, Autistics on Autism, is that 100% uh, of the proceeds are going back to our nonprofit. So not only do people get the opportunity to educate themselves a little, little bit more about adult autism by hearing 100 autistic adult stories via this book, but they also get to give back to a cause that's helping autistic students pursue their post-secondary education. Well, that's a, a wonderful organization, definitely. And I, I mean, part of our current, uh, how can I say this? Part of what we're doing currently as an agency, the Else for Autism Foundation, is paying a lot of attention to adults with autism, which I think is very well merited. Um, especially uh, since, um, if I can recall correctly, the first few decades um, really it was called infantile autism and child psychologists and the like were pretty much responsible for laying down some of the groundwork around all this. And, you know, it's not something that just goes away when you become an adult. It's something that you may have to, you know, you, you may need supports, so you may not need as many supports, whatever it is. You know, it's always good to know of people who are giving, you know, adults with autism, like you and me, um, a, a very, a much better chance than they would have had before. So I, I really do appreciate the mission statement of your organization. I appreciate that, Merrick. And I appreciate everything that Else for Autism does to really spotlight adult autism when most nonprofits really focus more primarily on children. And don't get me wrong, early intervention is the key, but autism is a lifelong disorder. So for listeners, really just try to emphasize the lifespan in your conversations around autism. It's really important. So uh, through my, for my uh, second question for you, um, and we're actually, uh, one of the stories I'm, I'm highlighting later on in the program is about Nick Sanchez, who was the first actor with autism to portray an autist uh, character with autism in a, in a Hallmark movie. So I, I know that one of your, uh, you know, one of your major uh, things that you have done is you have been a consultant for some big name films. What do you think about the current media representation of autism? Uh, I think it's, I, you know, what's so funny? It's, it's fluid. I, I legitimately change my answer to this. It feels like almost every other day because I feel like we're, we're seeing more autistic characters being played. Uh, but sometimes we're still not getting that representation of an autistic actor playing an autistic character. I think we need to do a better job of just making sure that autistic actors have the opportunity to audition. Because I, I, I feel as though we have people such as Temple Grandin who had a film based on their life on HBO where 
Claire Danes played Temple Grandin. And Claire Danes was phenomenal. She won an Emmy for her portrayal. She won a Golden Globe. And I was just thinking about it because there's so many people who say, well, an autistic adult needs to, or an autistic actor needs to play an autistic character. I think it's more on the lines of they should just be given the opportunities to get their foot in the door. Unfortunately, today, we know that the majority of autistic adults are unemployed or underemployed. So as I am grateful for Nick Sanchez, who is also in a in, in another movie for um, Lifetime uh, that just came out and is doing some phenomenal, phenomenal work, we, we need to do a better job of just making sure that when we actually have conversations about representation were make, making sure they include the voices of those who are autistic, not only in acting roles, but also consulting roles. I am happy to say that I'm going to be the autism consultant for season three of uh, Love on the Spectrum, which is going to be on Netflix. And I think it's really important that we really emphasize this whole saying of nothing about us without us. And as we continue to see more media representation focused on autism, that we just make sure that's being represented. Yeah. I, uh, I will have to say, I don't really have that much of a current dramatic background right now, but if, you know, there's like a rollout in Hollywood for a character who has autism. Um, I guess I can go back to my dramatic background and say, hey, you know, if you're looking for authenticity, I guess I would sort of be within that kind of, uh, within that kind of uh, idea. Um, <laughs> so anyways, uh, Nate, um, what, uh, what is your final question for Dr. Magro? So when, when will Merrick's interview be? No. <laughs> um, so, uh, so as we mentioned in our intro, um, you, you released a book in February called Autistics on Autism, Stories You Need to Hear about what helped them while growing up and pursuing their dreams. And we were hoping that you could present to our listeners, you know, some of the key messages uh, or takeaways from that story. Yeah, sure. I, I really think adult autism needs to be more recognized. And with this book, one of the things I want to really do is discuss the topic of what happens to autistic children when they become autistic adults. So Autistics on Autism is going to share with you topics around autism, including receiving the autism diagnosis, early intervention, overcoming obstacles, disclosure, acceptance, and what helped all these autistic individuals succeed both in K through 12 and now for all of them, all of them are in college or have graduated from college. So it's about first person perspectives. Many of our scholarship applicants were people who actually contributed to this book. So it's about the young leaders within our society. Our subtitle of this book is stories you need to hear about 
what helped them while growing up and pursuing their dreams. And I hope that not only this book will become an educational resource, we've already gotten testimonials from teachers who have said that they're going to give a copy of the book to each one of the teachers in their school district in the hopes of educating them a little bit more about autism. We've also had that message from uh, businesses and uh, therapy companies as well, which has truly been amazing. But one of the other messages I hope we take away from this book is helping nurture self-advocacy. Because I feel like sometimes one of the messages that falls through the cracks is that some people are not necessarily willing and wanting to share about their autism diagnosis. So by giving these 100 autistic adults an opportunity to have a, a platform to share their voices, we hope that will nurture their self-advocacy as they go into adulthood, as many of these individuals are very, very young still uh, from the ages of 17 to 25. Well, it's a, it's a terrific goal to, uh, I'm sorry, it's a terrific um, uh, success story for that, for that book to um, be published and be out there. Um, one of the I think from my perspective, one of the great things about autism being depicted more in the media and in, in popular television shows is it, it does, um, in many ways, it, it presents human stories on autism that I think has um, really helped people to gain more of an interest in learning about it. Um, maybe, you know, in many ways more so than a lot of the, the science that's being put out there, um, as great as science is, it has a, a wonderful purpose. Um, you know, it's those human stories that are really going to help uh, further spark interest and, and help people just want to learn more about this condition and, you know, some of the amazing people that have it. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more, Nate. You're, you're spot on. And it's like stories like Jim, who we're about to hear from, who... I mean, just the phenomenal, phenomenal work he's doing at Google and just as a self-advocate in his own right. I mean, we, we need to hear more about stories of people in our community and also give them the opportunities to, to, to share their stories too. Yeah, thank you. All right, so um, as heard, um, Let's uh, do the interview with uh, Jim, Jim Hogan. So um, welcome again to the program. Um, I will take the first two questions and Nate will have the last two questions. Um, so the first question I would like to ask you is why are corporate partnerships so useful for the autism community? Well, it's a great question. And once again, thanks for having me. So partnerships are so important because they allow each company or organization to concentrate on what their core strengths are, what their, what their primary offerings are. So as an example, Google partnered with Stanford University on our autism career program, which brought in a depth of academic thinking and process at the table that we felt would be better handled um, by those who specialize in that. So there's a lot of 
academic frameworks and things that were able to be put in place that was their core discipline. And, and we, we were able to integrate that into Google's uh, hiring process and, and also our onboarding process and how uh, we got everybody ready to accept uh, those autistic uh, candidates that, that came into our process, just as one example. Well, that's, uh, yeah, I will definitely have to uh, say that that is uh, pretty impressive. Um, my next question is, why has the tech sector been so important at giving autistic individuals jobs? Well, the tech sector solves new complex problems every day. And to get the best solution, we need many perspectives and many different thought patterns uh, to make solutions the best they can be. You know, in the tech center is, there's a lot of different jobs that you can get inside there. A lot of people think it's just about autistic people being good at coding or testing or, or some sort of uh, things, process related jobs like that. Uh, but the reality is what we're looking for is kind of that, that those diverse that and distinct thought patterns um, to solve complicated issues. And, you know, just as an example for myself, everybody thinks I'm like a, you know, some kind of master coder, but the reality is that I'm a strategist for a living. And I, and I basically can look at something that's extremely complex and I can break it down and, and, and explain it, um, you know, to the executive summary level uh, very, very quickly. And that's kind of what I bring to the table. Um, I've noticed that by because the tech sector has so many different places you can come in, uh, I've noticed that it, that we, allow for a great opportunity for, for lots of diversity and thought and, and a lot of different ways that people think and solve problems. And that's really what we're looking for, especially here at Google. Uh, when we interview, it's about how do you solve a problem and how does your, how does your brain work to think through those, those type of things. And, uh, and that's really what the tech sector is looking for. So. So, yeah, basically definitely looking to uh, neurodiversity you know, because uh, how your brain works can solve all kinds of problems in ways that other people may not have even thought of. So that's, that's pretty cool. So Jim, uh, thank you again for joining us. It's, it's wonderful to have you. I was, um, so I had a, a question um, related to the, the impact of the pandemic on, on the workforce. And, and so specifically, how do you feel that the COVID-19 pandemic has influenced work opportunities for those with autism, both in the tech sector uh, as well as other fields? Well, what's interesting is that I believe remote work has made it possible for more autistic individuals to, to enter um, and get jobs and 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 actually thrive better. And I, I love this question because I attribute my hiring at Google, which happened completely during the pandemic, um, and my remote work to be to me making a much more powerful first impression. Uh, I was able to get on to to uh, video conferences with uh, individuals high up in my organization that I would never be able to to access if I had just been a, a you know, hired outside the pandemic, I probably would just put in a room, you know, by myself, uh, you know, to, to sit there and, and, 
and strategize on on things, you know, as I'm doing my air quotes. Uh, but the but the pandemic actually put me on screen with with people all over the country because that's how Google uh, reacted to the pandemic and made sure that it was much easier for us to communicate. Uh, I just happened to be a, a you know. I think that was actually what made my first impression with Google so impactful. And I was able to tell my story much, much faster. And I think it's the hugest difference. You know, I joined Google 37 years into my career, and this is the best job I've ever had. Um, I, I felt like I had this immersive sense of belonging. And I hear the same thing from other autistic individuals that we've hired during the pandemic who are comfortable working from home. Uh, but that's not a one size fits all. There's also the other side of the coin, which is, when the pandemic happened, a lot of Googlers were removed from the environment and and sent home to work where they didn't have the high speed internet, they didn't have the big monitors, they didn't have uh, access to the to the free food and and the and the routines that they've come accustomed to. So it actually caused a negative impact. So it's not really a one size fits all. Uh, but for me, it actually gave me access to people I would have never gotten access to if I got hired, uh, you know, outside the pandemic. So. And I, and I attribute that all the time to, to the impression that I was able to make and, and how I was able to kind of uh, spread much spread my word much faster through Google as opposed to just being sitting in a room someplace, uh, you know, waiting for people to stumble across me and, and ask me ask me what it is that I do there. So Yeah, yeah, that's really interesting. And you know, appreciate you speaking about how it, it could have impacted both, you know, sides both sides of the coin. Also, maybe some, some adverse effects for people who were enjoying the, um, the dynamic within the, you know, the brick and mortar facility. But um, yeah, definitely interesting to explore, you know, how um, that the, the pandemic could actually intensify, you know, some of the benefits of our technological resources, like, you know, allowing um, even, even larger meetings or, or, um, even, um, you know, more extensive, uh, searching in the hiring process because of, you know, an increased reliance for, for technology. Yeah. And it also is, is, uh, people think that it's a one size fits all, uh, where, you know, well, this autistic individual prefers to work at home and, and, and that's where, you know, I start to, to stand up and say, you know, I have one person I mentor who wants to work remotely, but I have another person I mentor who wants to be in the office. So, and I'm in the office right now. I mean, we're having like a return to office work. So I, I'm in here. Um, I don't like coming to the office. I, I don't like new places. I, I'm, I'm anxious, but I know that the human side of things is very important. Like if I'm working with a team uh, and once people start to get to that hybrid return to office thing, which is what's happening today, and now all of a sudden people are in the office, they're having lunches together, um, they're, uh, they're going out of the office to, to share a meal together. And, and now, it, because it's no longer an, an, an even playing field. So now you either have to like, you know, jump on the bad wagon and travel across the country so I can be with my team, which, I, which I've done um, several times, um, or, or you just kind of get left behind as people start to return to office and return to that, to that social you know, construct of, of what, what air quote is normal so anyway i always say yeah. air quote when i'm giving you air quotes because this is the radio <laughs> <laughs> hey it helped enhance the message so um yeah they yeah, have very interesting um 
love the um, the uh, you know not taking the one size fits all approach and and making sure that the work experience is customized uh, and suitable to the skills of the individual. So, and I remember just one one more point on that. I remember when I first started, and we had like this virtual happy hour because. Google's a very social company. It's like in the office, you know, people are going out meeting with customers and everything in our organization. And I remember they had this one uh, virtual happy hours, like within a week from me joining the company. And I was able to join and I was one of the few Nooglers, um, which is what we call our new people. And they were very interested in me telling my story. So, and I just, I never forget that. It was like what I call my my first impression call. And if it, we, we didn't have the pandemic, I probably wouldn't have gotten that opportunity because I'm just way too socially awkward to walk up to a group of people and just start spilling my my story but over the video chat that's just become very normal so um but uh but yeah that's my i think i'm done with that subject <laughs> <laughs> okay thank you jim so as uh my last question um is as an inspiration to individuals with autism seeking employment opportunities what words of encouragement would you provide to them uh, as they, you know, navigate through the process? Well, I'm older than most. So the wonderful part about being a, a Gregler, which is what we call Googlers over 40, uh, is that a lot of people seek out my advice because I look like I've been around the block a few times. So the reality is I didn't have an easy go of it for the first 37 years of my career. And and I was always constantly being bullied and, and everything else. Um, so, and I applied to Google for, I, I applied over 40 times. So the best piece of advice I can give you is that uh, I, you know, never ever give up on your dreams. And, and remember that you don't have to do it on your, on your own. Like you can always find a great mentor. You know, I always thought like nobody really cared and nobody really understood what I was going through. And Everybody would be that I and I struggled that way by myself, uh, you know, and I and I basically went through the first, you know, 53 years of my life. And I I finally got to the point that I was so broken down and in in um and upset about the job I had before Google, uh, that I, I finally just said it was either gonna be me retiring or or finding a, a new opportunity. And I and I got some great advice. And I I think that because of the state I had become in, which isn't what I encourage people to do. What I encourage people to do is just go out and seek out advice. But um, the state that I had got into, I actually became very open uh, to receiving this feedback. And I, and I basically let people, I just let my ego go and I let people help me. I just kind of like became, uh, you know, like just, just kind of like let people uh, take control of the situation. And I let somebody you know, redo my resume to what Google would be looking for. And although I didn't believe in it, that's what I used to apply. And, uh, and I, and I basically said, you know, nobody's going to hire me with this resume. And I was completely wrong. So I've never been more wrong in my life. And, and, and the reality is I knew nothing about what it would take to get the job at Google. And it was actually listening to others that, that got me here. So, so the best advice I can offer, don't give up on your dreams. And, and make sure you have people who are helping you, helping you get there because you can't do it on your own for sure. Well, those are terrific words of wisdom. And I want to echo uh, what Jim just said. He said that the 40th time was the charm. So that's a great, great story of perseverance. 
I guess that 40 might be your lucky number then. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Jim, for your time spent. Um, you know, definitely not time wasted at all. Um, very, very valuable words of wisdom to anybody who would be listening to this. So well, thank you I always so much. appreciate coming on with you, Merrick. And, uh, and uh, you know, thanks for having me. Yeah. Anything? I know you weren't on the last one, but uh, but uh, but I but I enjoyed talking to you as well. <laughs> oh, thank thank you, Jim. The feeling is mutual. All right. Anything you want to say, Nate, uh, before we let Jim go? Um. No, just uh, you know, yeah. Thanks, thanks again for the work you're doing and uh, being an integral part of our advisory board. Yeah. <laughs> any any last words? <laughs> yeah. No uh, last so. words. I am, I am I am proud and 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 a happy member of the advisory board. So I appreciate being part of it so much. Yeah, and you're very very valuable, along with uh, Dr. Magro as you know, people, it's everyone on the advisory board has very, very impressive credentials. And you're one of them, Jim. So uh, anyways, uh, thank you all for listening to uh, our interview with uh, Jim and Dr. Magro. And next we'll have our interview with Julie Lobdell of the Els for Autism staff. So welcome everyone to our second big interview for the podcast program. And this time we're spotlighting Julie Lobdell, our coordinator of the ADT Adult Day Training Program. So here's my introduction. Uh, Julie has 30 years of experience working in recreation settings with individuals of all ages. She began her career working within inclusive recreation programs in Palm Beach County and went on to create and implement specialized program services for children, teens, adults, and seniors with autism and other related disabilities in the community. In addition, she has two decades of successful partnerships working directly with city municipalities, recreation program services, after-school programs, volunteer programs, and specialized day camps. Julie also created and managed adult day programs, which provided hands-on learning experiences for participants in the areas of daily living skills, social skills, community inclusion outings, and employment skills. In the areas of employment, she managed a program offering ongoing support to employed individuals to help them reach their highest potential in their positions and work toward future career goals. As our day program coordinator, Julie is helping the adult services department develop and implement a day program for adults who have completed high school. Because our adult services building will serve as a dedicated space to our ADT program, and because of the high demand for ADT in general, it was decided to interview Mrs. Lobdell tonight. So let's start off with uh, Nate's questions. Thank you, Merrick. Yes, thank you, Merrick. And I have to say, what a good decision 
that was made to have uh, Julie Lodebell on the podcast tonight. So um, first off, can you tell us a little bit about your journey to getting a position at the Els for Autism Foundation? Absolutely, Nate. So I work for another nonprofit organization serving individuals with varying exceptionalities for 25 years. Um, I was aware of the Els for Autism Foundation um, as I was a guest there several times for their roundtable sessions. And I had also been invited a few times over the years to come and discuss the, the day programs that I was offering, the social programs that I offered uh, within the community. And about two months before I retired, um, I received a phone call from the Adult Services Department at, for the Els for Autism Foundation to discuss um, an ADT program because they were in the beginning stages. So uh, I offered up my advice of what I knew on, on how to operate an ADT, uh, private pay in addition to med waiver and GR and some other funding sources, in addition to what was truly needed in the community. And I, I didn't want it to be another traditional one to 10 because all agencies offered the one to 10 ratio in Palm Beach County. And I had stated there is such a great need out there for an ADT to offer a smaller ratio to adults who need something after high school or who perhaps are not going into college or are only working part time. So I got a phone call in November of 2019 for the Els for Autism Foundation to see if I was interested in working part time as an instructor because they were going to start up a pilot program in February 2020. I was super excited because I had implemented an ADT program back in 1995 and to have another opportunity to assist of the implementation and planning with my years of experience. And the bonus was I was gonna be working with a clinical support team to be part of the ADT. I can tell you there was not a single second that I hesitated to the offer to become a part of the Els for Autism Foundation journey to create an ADT program. Yeah. Well, that's um, sounds like a, a long and uh, six. <laughs> it sounds like a, a very successful um, journey that got you to working with us. And um, let's let's shift gears to um, what you're what you're currently doing and the current work on the ADT program. So, uh, first of all, you know. Could you talk, describe our ADT program a little bit and then focusing on how ours differs from some of the other traditional ADT programs? What, what makes ours special and unique? Okay, well, first off, I would just, just in case, uh, I want people to know what ADT is for. It's an adult day training program for individuals who have graduated from high school and perhaps are not ready for employment yet or maybe just need only working part-time and the fact that we offer such a great ratio. It's important for individuals with autism and other developmental disabilities to have a place to go after high school ends if they're not going into college. And Nate, you asked me what's unique. Well, first off, I have, to, I have personally seen over the many years how the Els for Autism Foundation has grown and become a household name within the community because of the implementation of BEX practices. In addition, what makes us unique is the highly educated or well-experienced team members that we have. 
the ability to have clinical support, the lower ratio, the opportunity for families to have their adult child receive clinical services while they're in ADT is a life-changing um, situation, such as speech and OT. I see the amazing impact this makes for the individuals who are now speaking in full sentences, saying a few words, using their AAC devices to communicate and participating in vocational activities in our labs. We have the support from the clinical team, which is great because we're also using visuals for them to make choices and let us know what they want and what they need. And that is what makes us unique. Yeah, that sounds like an excellent dynamic uh, to our program and pretty incredible to hear the anecdotes uh, that have come out of it. Just the, the magnitude of the impact I know is great. And so um, lastly, what drew you to being our ADT coordinator? Well, it's kind of funny you say that because I wasn't really sure that's what I was going to be. Um, I especially love working with individuals with special needs. And it was just a very exciting to be a part of the journey. Um, I was asked to be an instructor two days a week and to be able to coordinate one day a week. I felt it would be best based on my two and a half years, I'm sorry, two and a half decades of experience. So I had several conversations with Dr. Aaron Lozat and Dr. Marlene Sotello to ensure that not just my experience was in the daily lesson plans and the day-to-day -day operations, but the importance of utilizing and implementing best practices so that the individuals could understand the lessons, the skills, and the outings that they would be prepared for. Um, it was very important for me to understand the steps so that the folks were able to participate in every aspect by us breaking it down. So that was kind of a learning curve for me as well. It's just an amazing uh, experience to be a part of someone's life and witness these things. I especially like it when the parents had said that they won't like this or they can't do it. I get pictures of them doing things and smiles on their faces. And this is what continues to draw me is watching them learn and master things. And the things that they achieve over time is just life altering for sure. Yeah, thank you. That's, that's amazing to hear. And one thing Julie alluded to that I, I appreciate so much about the foundation is the, the diversity of the team that we have um, and, and specifically the diversity of skills that are brought to the table. You have someone like Julie with, with decades of experience, you know, working with adults that have disabilities. And then, you know, at the same time on, on the very same team, you could have someone like uh, Dr. Lozat, who has a speech pathology background and, um, you know, uh, that interdisciplinary team, that, that sounds like a huge part of the success. Am I right? Absolutely. They are number one up there and making sure that this program is where it is today. And that's what makes us extremely unique throughout the entire community. All right, Merrick, I'll, I'll pass the rock over to you. Okay. So the first question that I have to ask you is that there is a microbusiness run through the ADT program called Sea of Possibilities. What is that? 
Can't wait to tell you, Merrick. So what is SIA Possibilities? It is a microbusiness owned and managed by the Els for Autism Foundation, which designs, creates, and sells beautiful handmade gifts by the adults with autism and other developmental disabilities in our ADT program. The participants create a variety of ocean theme art projects using materials found at the beach, such as a variety of shells, sea life, sea glass, sand, driftwood, coral, seaweed, and they incorporate all these items onto wood services, canvases, larger shells, onto shells. We use twine for our sun catchers and keychains. Our nautical theme allows for endless possibilities of sea creations to build upon, to create coasters, picture frames, holiday ornaments, ring dishes, greeting cards, year-round holiday items, ocean prints, candles, wine glasses, and other beautiful creations to enjoy and admire in your home or to give as a gift. And they are some very, very beautiful and lovely uh, designs and you know, useful items that you can bring with you and you know, whether you buy them at one of the vendor sites or you get them shipped to you, it's, uh, they are absolutely beautiful pieces. And I think that everyone should have a piece of Sea of Possibilities in their uh, household. I agree with that, Merrick. And I think that's really nice how our uh, pricing is, is, is for everyone, anything from $5 to $40. So everybody can grab something that's been made by the individuals in our ADT program, micro-business sea of possibilities. So what are the skills that ADT participants learn as part of their role in the micro-business? The micro-business offers learning, offers learning skills of creativity, inclusion opportunities, employment skills in the areas of customer service, sales, task production, inventory, money, design and development, packaging, setting up, breaking down, and leadership. I do see some of them trying to help the other folks when we do the shows, uh, prompting them, each other, to talk to the customers and engage and interact. And they also do some upselling, which is pretty amazing because that's not something we've ever taught them. Mm. Nice. Yeah, it's uh, once you get someone's confidence going, then they end up doing things that you would have never thought that they could do. Absolutely. Never thought possible. It's amazing to witness. So what has been so rewarding with ADT and the Sea of Possibilities micro business? Okay, so rewarding with ADT is the opportunity to be a part of an amazing team that developed an adult day program that far exceeds anything out in the community. And with my decades of experience, I can say that with no hesitation. The Els for Autism um, Adult Day Program, every parent would want their adult child to be a part of it. I enjoy the relationships with everyone in ADT and their family members as well. You say rewarding? <laughs> well, yes. I get to witness the accomplishments and the milestones, and then I get to share them with the family members, either face-to-face -face or with a photograph. And nothing compares to being a part of making a difference in someone's life. Rewarding would see a possibilities. Wow. Well, watching an idea that I developed into a micro business for, this, for these amazing individuals, I get to privilege each day 
to see how it has grown. And working with Dr. Marlene Sotella, we now have a, a business plan, a Facebook page, online ordering capabilities, partnerships with Lucky Shucks in Jupiter, Loggerhead Marine Life Center in Juneau. And we also go out into the community to promote our SIA possibility projects to various venues and community events. And all of this would not have been possible without the hard work and dedication of the adults in the ADT program, the team members in ADT, and the continuous support and direction from Dr. Marlene Sotelo and Dr. Aaron Lozot. Also, in addition, the marketing team at the Els for Autism Foundation, who always include us in their events to help promote the amazing artwork that these adults create. But there's one more thing I'm rewarding. To see their individual expressions after they create something or master a never level of a step with a project is to witness their confidence and pride of what they created is selling and people want more. Seeing a quiet person stand up and yell, yes, I did it, this is my best work ever. That is the reward lottery, Merrick. Definitely sounds like a reward, you know? I think that I could definitely use that as like a GIF or some kind of video that I can just look at as a point of inspiration and definitely a point of inspiration for others. Absolutely. And I, it's just nice to see each other. And when they say, I did it, I did it. Is mom going to like it? Do you like it? You think we're going to sell it? And I've gotten to the point now where it's just like, well, how much do you think we should sell this for? Or they're getting up and they're gathering the products and they're making some of this stuff completely independent with no prompts. Wow. I do remember one of the clients, we were at this uh, movie night event and he came over and he saw some of the Sea of Possibilities, um, you know, merchandise. And he was like, I made that and I made that. <laughs> and to see him light up, like, you know, so proud of what he did was, you know, basically that overshadowed the whole event itself. Yeah, I agree with that, Mayor. It's a, it's a nice thing to witness and experience. So let me ask you, um, what are you most looking forward to in the adult services building for the ADT program and SIA possibilities? Well, for the adults to have a dedicated space specifically created built and designed for the purpose of hosting a unique ADT program, Monday through Friday, set up for daily living, vocational skills, gonna have a cafe, a learning kitchen. I'm very thankful and excited for the adults to have this. See a possibility space in the new building? There's really no words other than sheer excitement to have a dedicated space for their artwork and to display it for all who enter. So I just have one last question to ask you. This is coming a little bit out of left field, but I figure I'd ask you this. Um, okay. Not everybody knows this about you, but you have a history of swimming with sharks. <laughs> why would one do that? Okay, so why would one, why, sorry, why would I want to swim with sharks, you ask? Yeah. Well, when I was a teenager, uh, it was in the mid-70s. Um, I was about a half a mile out. I love swimming in the ocean and I was bitten on the foot, but it let go right away and it swam off because sharks don't really want to eat us. 
Uh, they're nothing more than we're a mistake for maybe a seal or just plain curiosity because we're in their water home. After that encounter, I became extremely interested in everything about them. So did you know that they have been around for 40, 450 million years? They don't have bones. They have good eyesight and fantastic night vision, and they can see and color. They feel like sandpaper. They like to be petted, and sharks can go into a trance when you flip them upside down. There is over 500 species of sharks, and they are most feared, hunted, and misunderstood creatures in the ocean. On my 60th birthday, I want to go in a crystal clear cage where the largest great whites swim. It used to be South Africa, but now it's not. Honestly, it's, it's like they're like dogs <clears throat> because they're very curious. They like to play and they're just it's just a unique thing to do. It's it's euphoric. That's why I like to do it. Well, <clears throat> I must say that's a very, very valuable answer. And uh, I, I have to say, um, I really, really appreciate it your answers to all the questions that we've assembled. Um, however, how challenging the questions were, you were able to get through them really, really well because you have a strong passion and a strong desire to do what you do. And it really fits in very well with the mission of the ADT program, Sea of Possibilities. You're, you're basically the lightning rod. You're the heart of the whole operation for a reason. Well, thank you. I, I think I'm only part of the heart, but thank you so much. I, I absolutely love working for the Ells for Autism Foundation. I love our families and the persons that we serve and the team, like Nate was saying, the the difference in the variations of everyone's skills, it just makes it so unique and amazing. And that people just, when they come, they fall in love with the Ells for Autism Foundation in addition to all the valued services that we offer to their families. Thank you, Julie. I appreciated your wealth of knowledge on adult services programs and also on, on sharks. Uh, that, was, uh, that was impressive. I guess you're our a uh, resident shark expert as well. Well, I don't know if I want to go that far, but <laughs> <laughs> I just like them because they, they don't speak, but they do communicate with the way they swim. It's a yeah. very interesting insight. Yeah, well, maybe one day you'll go shark cage diving with me, Merrick. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'd rather you host a Shark Week movie night instead okay. of... <laughs> <laughs> all right but i'll take pictures when i go in the crystal clear cage on my 60th birthday that would be quite a birthday yes it will everybody all my friends said they're gonna they're gonna wait in the boat <laughs> <laughs> well gentlemen thank you so much i appreciate you doing this and getting the word about about the adult day program at the ells for autism foundation and how amazing the program is and how the clinical support team is there to ensure that uh, the best practices are being implemented and people are able to make choices and communicate with us in any way that they can to have um, an amazing opportunity. 
And thank you so much for being a guest uh, tonight for the podcast. Um, Nate, anything you want to add? No, just, yeah, thank you again. And for the work you're doing with the day program, it's, it's really special. And, um, you know, we're, we're looking forward to, to speaking to you soon and hearing, uh, hearing about what you all are up to next. Okay, well, thank you very much, Nate and Merrick. You have a great evening, and I appreciate the uh, podcast interview. Thank you so much. You don't have to go far from home to search for treasures of the deep. Instead, you can pick up these treasures from our Sea of Possibilities program, our adult training program micro-business. Our fantastic clients create a wide variety of nautical arts and crafts for everyone to marvel at and purchase. We will have vendors all over Palm Beach County in Florida and can ship to wherever your heart desires. Our online store is not open yet. So please take a look at the elsforautism.org website. See the possibilities. And now, as always, here comes Today in the World of Autism. Starting with my co-host, Dr. Nate Chinock and his fantastic research-oriented stories. Well, here it is, everybody's favorite segment. Well, maybe not everybody's, but uh, potentially Merrick and, and mine. All right, so first off, there was a new version of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders released this month, and it includes many changes to the definitions of both autism and intellectual disability that experts say will further clarify the diagnoses. The modification was made to the DSM-5, which was first published in 2013. More than 200 advisors reviewed proposals that were submitted online by researchers prior to publishing this most recent version that came out this month. The manual's entry for intellectual disability will now be labeled intellectual development disorder to more closely align with the World Health Organization's disease classification system, which uses the term disorders of intellectual development. The change will strengthen the clarity of the entry on intellectual disability. And it is vital for consistency across different sources of clinical guidelines and recommendation because differences can create confusion and negatively impact eligibility criteria for obtaining essential supports. The changes to the entry for autism spectrum disorder are considered minor alterations compared to the differences in the fifth edition that was first released nine years ago. That edition consolidated four labels, autistic disorder, Asperger's syndrome, childhood disintegrative disorder, and pervasive developmental disorder not otherwise specified under the umbrella diagnosis of autism spectrum disorder. So that is autism spectrum disorder as we know it today was due to something that was introduced 
in the original DSM-5 in 2013. One change as far as the recent addition, the most recent addition is concerned, allows clinicians to describe related behaviors that don't rise to the level of a separately diagnosable condition, such as self-injury. Instead of using the term associated with another neurodevelopmental, mental, or behavioral disorder, the book now reads associated with a neurodevelopmental, mental, or behavioral problem. A second change is aimed at clearing up potential misunderstandings of a diagnostic criterion. The fifth edition requires an autism diagnosis to include persistent deficits in social communication and social interaction across multiple contexts as manifested by the following, deficits in social emotional reciprocity and nonverbal communicative behaviors used for social interaction and in developing, maintaining and understanding relationships. So this was changed in the latest revision to now read as uh, manifested by all of the following, okay? Not, not just, um, not just um, by a few of the following. Um, so the latest revision uh, eliminates confusion over the inclusion of one, two, or three of the deficits and um, you know, it's now necessary to include all three of these deficits. So according to Jill Escher, who's president of the National Council on Severe Autism, she was quoted as saying that, this is a small but helpful clarifying change intended to emphasize the serious and disabling nature of autism spectrum disorder. She also went on to say that we know from our conversations with some members of the DSM-5 work group that they had concerns about the watering down of autism, which by definition is a significant impairment of basic functional abilities and not a mere difference, neurotype, learning style, or trait. In contrast to this perspective from Jill Escher, um, or not, not so much in contrast, but just a different perspective, uh, Zoe Gross of the Autistic Self-Advocacy Network said she worries that the group's manual could be moving toward a more narrow definition to address a societal perception of overdiagnosis of autism. So I know there's a lot of, of wording there in terminology. You can definitely look at some more of the notes within our show notes for today. Um, but, you know, let's focus on the comments that were made there from Jill Escher and also from Zoe Gross. And I'll ask you, Merrick, you know, um, do you have any thoughts on this issue overall? Um, and do you, do you think that the points made by these two experts hold some weight in the discussion? Well, it's the constant tug of war between two different groups of individuals. You have uh, an individual who's a parent of a child, probably a parent of a child who has profound autism or severe autism, as the group's name is known, versus someone 
who is a self-advocate and would classify themselves as autistic. Um, and you would think, you know, that there would be like a bridge between the two, but there can be such a great divide between both groups because on one hand, you have a population who is uh, severely affected to the point in which they may need a caretaker 24 seven. And then you have another population where the effects are so mild to where, you know, whatever you may get from it may actually serve as a function or as, you know, may actually serve in a way that, that may posit itself as a neurological strength. And uh, there are a lot of people, though, who are in between these types of camps. And I've, as, as I've mentioned before, I've met some of them in my past. Um, it, autism isn't either, um, you know, people with profound... Uh, deficiencies or people with, you know, such mild deficiencies that it really isn't something that uh, is, um, is noticeable as much. Um, I do, I do believe um, that overall, it's really a question as to if the person doesn't have autism, what does the person have? Um, it's one of the many, many, and I know I ask a lot of questions, but you know, if, if you're fearful that the that there's a massive umbrella when it comes to autism, and that because of that, that the right population isn't being treated as effectively, then the people who are being left out in the rain, what is their diagnosis? And if their diagnosis fits some of the criteria of autism, but is not defined as such, well, then what exactly would that be defined as? Would it be ADHD? Would it be ADD? Um, I, I think that um, I, I also will have to mention, of course, that while the DSM-5 may be gospel to so many people out there, it's not everyone's gospel. I have still classified myself as having Asperger's syndrome. So many others still classify themselves as that. Um, it's, it's very, very important. And it's a very important, uh, you know, manual. But... I don't know how many people will actually take whatever changes in it as exact gospel related to them. I think as usual, um, the, the constant narrative of individuals with autism as being, you know, extraordinarily special or superhuman or, you know, having superpowers, um, which I, you know, am actually go, that's my second story, kind of. Um, I, I think that that uh, may get a little bit overemphasized. And uh, my first story is actually conducive 
to talking about, you know, this this uh, gap in perception. Um, because I, I think that, that, that it's easier to look at whatever you have, whatever condition you have, as allowing you to have great power or to have great, um, it, it's, it's a part of our culture, I think, to, to believe that, you know, you see stories on people and if you, if you do great things and you just see stories that are grieving or that are basically of people uh, complaining about their severely autistic child and you're like, okay, so they're, they, they can have some very, very strong responses and it just sort of feels like, okay, well, what about us? Um, you know, what do you think about us? And do you think that uh, that 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 kind of uh, you know mood is uh, going to uh, help? Um, I uh, I must say that um, I would have to be a part of the population that we'll look at uh, individuals who may be uh, very distraught over their child having profound autism. And I think it will take a lot of guts for someone like me to go, yeah, I understand. And yeah, I, I really do uh, care. Um, yeah. I think that where the um, more self-advocate, where the more self-advocacy um, kind of group comes in, um, I, I think that when they get a little bit too much is when they decide, you know, if you have any doubts about autism or you have any doubts about your own autism or you maybe want to see a cure, you maybe want to see, and I've said this before, but, you know, to call all of that ableism is, to me, I, I feel like it, it's, it's not exactly understanding that not everyone feels the same way that some of these professed um, self-advocates feel. And so I will have to say, if, if I was to align more out of the two of them, um, I, I think that I will have to take a little bit of both. Yeah. Because I think that with what Jill said, I think that there is a kind of a need to yeah as usual the the most profoundly affected by whatever it is whatever condition it is whatever neurology it is must have supports as soon as possible and must have them ready as soon as possible 
and people who may not need those kinds of supports for whatever reason or who may not need to get those kinds of supports because maybe they're they would be able to do things that that they would um or maybe they're misdiagnosing themselves i think that those supports should probably go towards someone who is profoundly affected and you can say without any doubt in your mind that yes that person definitely has autism and you cannot really debate about it but on the other hand if you meet you know enough of the criteria though should that basically mean that you're kind of excluded from the definition too um because you know it's it's really it's i wouldn't say it's about an overdiagnosis but i would say and it's very very important that uh the autistic self-advocacy network individual um is a woman and so what because you know many, many women don't get diagnosed correctly who happen to have autism. It's, uh, that's kind of the sticky wicket. Do you want to help those who are profoundly affected? Do you want to help those who are women who really need the diagnosis and the supports they need, but they are like chameleons to everyone else who they meet? And I think that if we're able to bridge that gap, that would serve society better. Yeah, well, Sorry. you bring up many good points there. And one of the things I heard from your perspective is that, you know, the, the spectrum of opinions on this matter probably to some degree mirrors the diversity of this, the autism spectrum itself. Uh, there's, a, there's a lot of different opinions and you, know, you certainly don't have to align with one side, uh, which might be that you know, autism is, is overdiagnosed and um, you know, it should be more uh, uh, specified for uh, severe, type cases. And then the other side, which is, um, you know, any, any sign of autism should be diagnosed. Um, I think this article, it does have weight because the DSM, although it's not a, it's not a Bible uh, for mental health conditions or autism by any stretch of the imagination, it is used by both insurance companies and also education systems to you know, some degree, uh, adjust their policies as to, you know, what kind of criteria they have for someone to, to meet demands for services or insurance coverage. And, um, so it's, it's an interesting debate. Um, and I think you, you said it best, Merrick, when you said, well, if you don't, um, diagnose these individuals that show some, uh, symptoms with autism, you know, what are you going to classify them as, or how will they get the assistance they need? And, you know, that is a big concern 
And that's where, um, you know, having a, a spectrum mentality can be really helpful. It kind of helps make sure it helps ensure that, you know, no one is left uh, out of the equation. Yeah, I wouldn't necessarily, in my role, I may be a kind of a role model. I may be, you know, a champion of certain things. But I wouldn't necessarily call myself an activist in a sense where I, I feel like, you know, that kind of terminology makes me feel like I have to swing so, you know, high for the fences to represent the group that I'm in instead of basically trying to take that full approach where, you know, maybe uh, people on both sides can say some things that, you know, I, I don't really think are wise to say, but to also sort of understand the two camps, the two major camps, because I usually don't hear, there's not like an organization for um, mainstream or mainline autism where, you know, on the spectrum, it's somewhere in the middle, you know, where the person has verbal skills and verbal abilities, but may need some supports in other areas, but is not, you know, severe, but is not, you know, mild either. And is there even an organization that, that caters to them? And it, it seems like whenever you have a organization, it's either, and whenever, whenever you think about an organization for autism, it's either, it has to be for severe, it has to be, you know, uh, self-advocacy. I guess that Autism Speaks uh, is, is trying to sort of uh, bridge the gap a little bit. Um, and I do appreciate if, if that is what their purpose is, if that is what their mission is. And I appreciate any um, that that's one of the things that I do like about the foundation I work for is that we're not we're not, you know, going to the extremities on either side, but we're trying to help everyone out. You know, we have uh, people all over the spectrum as clients of our programs and services. And, you know, in the end, it's really all about helping everyone out to make sure that they feel satisfied and that they feel loved and you know that they that they feel a sense of security yeah that's really well said and uh i i would say that it's admirable that as someone in your shoes who like you said many would characterize you as um you know a champion or or a role model within the spectrum and you know, you could, you could put me in that category um, as well, but you're able to see both sides. You're able to empathize um, with maybe some of the, the parental groups who are on the side of, um, you know, more specification and more of a clear cut um, societal recognition of, of, you know, how debilitating autism can be in, um, you know, in it, in its uh, stronger uh, forms. So um, I just wanted to say that I, that's that's pretty commendable on your part. 
Yeah, I, I feel like, you know, uh, too many people are in their own little bubbles. And I think that a lot of that, ha um, I think that it may be closer to, you know, people who are strong, strong, you know, self-advocates can maybe be in a little bit of a bubble. Um, but I, I, I do believe, however, that, um, you know, if we just basically move ourselves together in a direction instead of just being at odds with one another constantly, um, there, there, there has to be some, <laughs> some time in which, you know, someone like a Zoe Gross and someone like uh, Jill Escher could just stand and shake hands, even with their profound differences and their thoughts on issues like this. Absolutely. All right. So I've uh, I've said so, so much. So on to your next story. Yeah, we'll shift gears here in a pretty dramatic fashion now to uh, present a story that's a little bit more on the basic science side of things than, than anything I've covered before. But I think that the findings are, are noteworthy enough that um, they're worth highlighting. So unearthing drugs with the potential to treat autism often involves assessing compounds for their ability to reverse autism-like traits in mouse models. However, most drugs shown to be effective in mice and in other species, for that matter, have not worked the same way in, in individuals with autism. And that's been very frustrating um, for scientists in this field looking for medications that can be helpful for various aspects of, of functioning. Some researchers have turned to screening drugs in human neurons prepared from induced pluripotent stem cells or iPSCs. And these are mature cells such as skin cells that have been chemically reprogrammed back into an immature state. But these neuronal screens lack robustness, mainly because of variability in the genetic background of iPSCs and in the laboratory procedures used to coax them into, uh, to di differentiate into neurons. As a result, compounds identified as therapeutic in one neuronal screen often fail to show an effect in another. To sidestep those issues, researchers at the Scripps Research Institute Molecular Screening Center in our very own Jupiter, Florida, simplified and standardized the production of iPSC-derived neurons. Their new procedure makes it possible to grow millions of neurons in a manner that's inexpensive and also that allows them to freeze the cells in batches until they are ready to be used for research purposes. The team used CRISPR-Cas9 gene editing to introduce mutations in genes linked to intellectual disability and autism. Some of the most common genetic uh, single gene mutations in autism include DDX3X, FOXP1, and SHANK3. And so they were able to use editing to introduce mutations in the genes 
um, in IPSCs derived from a non-autistic person. They also made IPSCs from the cells of an autistic person with a mutation in the ADNP gene and from an unaffected, unaffected sibling. They then reprogrammed the cells into a type of neuron that releases the neurotransmitter glutamate. Alterations in glutamate signaling have been implicated in autism, social, and motor traits. So that was another model that they examined. They, um, the DDX3X and ADNP neurons form fewer and shorter neurites, tiny branches that send and receive signals from other neurons. So the researchers assessed more than 5,000 compounds for their ability to promote neuronal branching in these neurons, uh, which they measured using a machine learning algorithm. Demonstrating the robustness of large-scale drug screening in human neurons shows far greater potential than mice and even chimpanzee models. At the Scripps Center, they plan to conduct even more ambitious screens in cells harboring other mutations, which could identify a compound that works on several autism genes or reveal if certain mutations need to be matched to specific treatment types. So I know this is, this article includes a lot of scientific terms. So I wanna give a quick synopsis and then, you know, ask you for your thoughts, Merrick. But to summarize, what the researchers at Scripps have done is they've made it possible for um, medication studies to now examine the specific effects that medications have on neurons. Okay, so um, whether it's the rate that neurons are producing glutamate or it's the strength of the uh, dendritic spines on the neurons that receive messages from one to another and help get the message translated um, throughout the brain in a quicker fashion. So it's a really, really magnificent scientific finding that's going to allow um, medication studies to be done on actual neurons, okay? And not just trying to infer that medications which work in mice models or in chimpanzee models will also be applicable to humans. Okay, those, those studies have led to many issues um, when it comes to the human trials of the medications. So Merrick, how exciting is it to hear about the work being done at the Scripps Research Center, which is right in the backyard of the Els for Autism Foundation? Well, I will say, um, you know, I, I think that, um, this all sounds extremely exciting. I'm always interested in learning more about the new, you know, pharmaceuticals, the new technology that comes out, um, especially uh, when it comes to treating people who really need treatments or who really want to have some form of a treatment in order to, to feel, you know, the way that they really want to feel. And I think that uh, it's, it's definitely very, very much uh, looking ahead. Um, you know, 
And it's, it's really, it's one of those things in which you think to yourself, wow, people are somehow in a laboratory or they're somehow in some research center and they're able to use this and that and what's he plucks it and what's he plaques it and whatever. And they're able to use that to be able to do things that people would probably find hard to believe that can be done. Um, my feeling overall on treatment, especially on treating autism, uh, maybe through medication or pharmaceuticals or whatever, um, I think that, you know, it is really up to the choice of the individual themselves and if not the individual, the person who can speak for them. So I, I think, you know, this is sort of where I guess I part ways with some of the self-advocates in which I do believe that it is useful and I do believe that it is necessary to figure out how to create, you know, products, how to create drugs or pharmaceuticals or whatever uh, for people who really, really need treatment or for people who really want treatment uh, or for people who, you know, want their symptoms of autism either to be reduced or to be gone or whatever. Um, you know, to me, I think that if we move along forward and we are able to uncover more and more, uh, you know, options out there for people who have a wide range of opinions as to what to do. I, I think that that is, uh, it's, it's, to me, it's, it's always very exciting, I guess is how I'd answer it. It's always very exciting. And, you know, that's, uh, the Scripps Research Institute in Jupiter is a huge facility, and I always look forward to the future, you know, and I always look forward to what is what was once called science fiction becomes science fact. So, yeah. Such a, yeah, that's such a good point. A lot of this technology, especially the CRISPR um, genetic editing technology. It sounds like it is from a, a science fiction movie back in the this 1970s or 1980s. It's pretty amazing that some of these technologies have come to fruition. I really like that you made the point about treatment being the, an option that's available, but not something that should be necessitated. And that does lead to a, a different topic that I'm sure we could spend a long time discussing on. Um, I think what's kind of exciting about this technology, I, in the article and you know, my synopsis, I mentioned a lot about how it could be used for medication research, but you know, another exciting possibility is if, if you have the ability to look at these neurons and you know, maybe, maybe you could look at how um, how they change in, in response to not only medications, but 
you know, also maybe other um, compounds, maybe certain natural supplements, maybe. Um, I hate to interrupt you, but yeah, I think that that kind of research would be very, very useful for someone like me who, um, you know, as I've said before, it's, I, I've, sometimes I feel like I don't completely understand how my mind works. And I would really, really like, you know, greater authoritative research as to why my mind, especially with the 15 different medications I've taken, why my mind reacts the way it does. So yeah. I, I am completely on board with what you're just saying right now. Yeah, yeah, I appreciate it. That's completely understandable too, you know, and I'll, I'll deviate now a little bit into the the psychiatric field also. And just like you're saying, a lot of people get frustrated that they've tried so many different medications with limited effectiveness and people just are looking for answers sometimes. So even if it's, it's hard to see how this, you know, this type of science, maybe it's not um, all that fine tuned just yet, you know, this and some of the other brain imaging technologies we have to be able to see, you know, exactly how the brain reacts to medications or, you know, treatment modalities, even, um, you know, you could look at how the brain responds to ABA therapy as well. So, you know, just um, getting a little bit more in, um, enriched into the detail. Yeah, I, I certainly agree with you 100%. So um, I guess I'll get going with my stories. Yes, please. So my attempts were to go from profound autism to, I guess one would call it high functioning autism. So the first story deals with profound autism and it's titled the successes when having profound autism. So at the autism cafe, Eileen Lamb, who is autistic, writes about her passage of parenting as an autistic mother who cares for her severely autistic son among the other children who either are or will be a part of her family. While a lot of the focus in the media might be on success stories usually achieved by individuals with autism who are generally classified as higher functioning, it isn't as dramatic in regards to individuals who are much more profoundly affected by it and thus is less seen as relevant by them. However, they also deserve to be seen and spotlighted as much as their higher functioning peers. In a blog article published in June of 2019 titled Everyday Autism Success Stories That Deserve Attention, Mrs. Lamb talks about this discrepancy regarding her six-year-old at the time, boy Charlie, who is nonverbal and the successes that someone like herself is supposed to have. One example she gives is of Charlie not running into the street is a, is a success story for him, while pumping her own gas is a, is a success story for her. She also mentions the reality that for many individuals with autism, the idea of independence and success may not come the same way, the same way as it does for other people. So she takes Charlie's example and sources to other individuals who also have relations to individuals with profound autism, to have them tell their success stories. Usually what you read are about how what may seem like a mundane life skill learned is a big deal to the people around them. Tying one's shoes 
Zipping a zipper, being able to delay the meltdown during such things as getting a haircut, are all highlighted by the different people who wrote to her. It is true that there are plenty of impressive people on the spectrum. For example, all the members on our advisory board stand out as impressive people, but this doesn't fit a good chunk of people out there who uh, a simple uh, wearing or, or basically setting up and wearing their and and how putting their own clothes on at the age of eight is is a success for them in fact it doesn't fit a subsection of our clients who are usually assisted by their caretakers and don't have the ability to use aac augmented alternative communication to communicate to others the best thing I can do is to try to give a voice to the voiceless to have people realize the humanity in every one of us. So I'm not sure, um, you know, in all the research you have done, Nate, how much of it has focused on profound or severe autism? That's a terrific question, Merrick. Terrific. There's really a bias in the, the research field on autism towards individuals that have high functioning abilities or some level of verbal abilities. And um, I know, for example, I'm guilty of this myself, but when I was doing my thesis project at Florida Atlantic University, I wanted to study how facial emotion recognition abilities in autism relate to brain activity patterns. And, you know, in this study, we ended up selecting individuals that had high functioning autism because it was a requirement that they have some understanding and they demonstrate understanding of the basic um, universal emotions that were needed to complete this task. And so I think that, you know, similar to that, it's unfortunate, but a lot of studies looking at, you know, social, communicative, and neurological research has focused on higher functioning individuals because um, it's just it's just easier to conduct laboratory tasks um, on these individuals. You know, they have more abilities and not as many challenges. But um, I know there's more and more organizations now advocating for research to be done across the spectrum. And I can't stress how important this is, um, especially um, when it comes to understanding genetics and how the brain works between these different, um, you know, classifications within the spectrum, because um, ultimately, you know, understanding what works for um, people with high functioning autism is going to be very different from understanding what works for individuals with profound autism. So um, I would almost, I would advocate for research studies to be done where, you know, you still admit, you still admit participants from all ranges of the spectrum, but then you do some subcategorizing uh, of, you know, using cutoff scores on certain 
um, autism scales, you know, maybe it's the, the Gilliam autism rating scale, or it's the, um, you know, the social communicative, communicative questionnaire, but regardless, you want to have these different subgroups so that you can, uh, better identify, you know, characteristics that are, uh, present in, in some individuals with autism and not others and, taking it a step further, you know, understanding what treatments, um, how treatments work differently. So I know, I know that's a little bit wordy, but it's, uh, it's a really important topic. So I wanted to be sure not to forget anything. Yeah. Um, that's a very interesting uh, answer you gave. Um, because, you know, it's, I think that those with profound autism are probably the most mysterious out of everyone who has the disorder because, you know, you, you make a lot of assumptions, especially with those who aren't able to use AAC devices. So you make a lot of assumptions about them. And it would be good if we were able to you know, find out exactly how much of the assumptions are correct and how much of the assumptions are wrong. So, you know, yeah. it's, it's, uh, it's one of those kinds of things. Yeah, it's well said. And you've made this point numerous times and some of our guests have as well, that just because an individual is nonverbal, it doesn't mean that they don't want to communicate yeah. And the question is, how can you get them to communicate? Let's say they don't have access or they aren't able to use an AAC device. Does that mean that the people with AAC devices have a greater privilege over those who don't have it? And would the person, if they found another way to communicate, you know, it's like those individuals who are you know, so paralyzed that they use their eyes to communicate on these like different machines and the like, you mm -hmm. know, it's, it's really about how people communicate and how people try to find ways to communicate and how, you know, you can, uh, that's, that's sort of why I like the puzzle piece for autism, because there's something very mysterious about it. And I think that if we do more research on those with profound autism, the mystery will start making more sense. And we can start having a greater idea as to, you know, what the spectrum really is all about. Yeah, that's really well said. All right. So my second story here is uh, kind of tied into what we were talking about with Dr. Carrie Magro. Accurate media representation has been a common theme these days. It has been said that the first deaf actress to win an Academy Award, Marley Matlin, when she was chosen for the movie that won Best Picture at the Oscars this year, uh, CODA, or Children of Deaf Adults, and she was selected, uh, she said that the only people who she would play with in that movie would have to be deaf actors themselves. She would not want hearing actors to play deaf characters. 
And so for her decision, Troy Kutzer became the first staff actor to win an Academy Award for his performance in that film for Best Supporting Actor. And he did a great job. Certainly, it generally feels like actors and actresses who play characters with disabilities to people within their communities, it, it feels inauthentic and staged. My counterpoint, as I may have mentioned before, is that allowing actors and actresses to play roles outside of their lived-in experiences allows greater empathy by the ones who perform, even if it may not come from personal experience. Should then disabled actors and actresses only play to their disability? If I was cast, I wouldn't want to just be cast as that, as that Asperger's actor. That's where the difficulty comes in. For our newest role model for the screen, we have Nick Sanchez, a 17-year-old actor who has autism and has been playing characters with autism for a lifetime in Hallmark, the latter being a first for one-to-one -one representation in the autism community. In the Hallmark film, Our Christmas Journey, Nick Sanchez plays 18-year-old Marcus, whose screen mother is well-known advocate Holly Robinson-Pete. The central drama in this story is that Marcus wants to live in a faraway program built for adults with cognitive challenges and has autism, but his mother is hesitant about such a long leap into wanting to become independent. For Lifetime earlier this year, they premiered one of their original movies called Safe Room, which is a thriller centering around the recently widowed mother and her 14-year-old son, Ian. After Ian witnesses a break-in and records a murder, the two intruders attempt to go after the mother and son who are now in a makeshift panic room created by the mother's late husband. At the end of the film, resources to learn more about autism are shown. What is key to Nick's story is creativity and imagination that is underrated when people converse about autism. He would create characters and role play for years around family and friends, which was a major reason, reason for him to get into acting. In fact, he only stopped doing it a few years ago. He sees his autism as being an ability to see the world differently and has remarked that he is awesomely autistic and views it as a superpower. So Nate, a, a few questions to ask if you feel like you have the time. <laughs> the first one is, have you ever done dr dramatic arts before or considered acting? All right, well, you know, I, I've, I've definitely got the time to answer this question, but my answer may be a little bit underwhelming to our listeners. I, um, I can't say I've considered acting ever before, but I will say that um, when I was a sophomore in high school, I, I had kind of a gift when it came to impromptu. And we had an assignment where, you know, we had to pick um, a topic out of a hat and then choose a partner and converse with somebody about that topic for five minutes nonstop, um, trying to keep the conversation interesting. And it actually ended up being the case that half of the class chose me as their communication partner. And I thought that was really interesting because I'd never um, really displayed any sort of talent in the, the dramatic arts. But when it came to impromptu speech or conversation, 
that was something that I was, I feel I've always done very strongly with. And I think that um, I still could converse with just about anybody from any background. Um, and I, I think that would, that's, that's um, probably the closest that I could get to um, anything like acting. But what, what about you, Merrick? Let me flip this question. Well, um, so I, I asked you that question because I think before I have mentioned that I used to act in the dramatic arts. Um, I used to actually sing too. I would do musicals. I would do plays. I was at a performing arts camp for uh, two years and I did a lot of different things when I was there. Plays usually. Um, I was in a production of Anything Goes. So, and when I was graduating from high school, one of the last courses I believe I had was in the theater arts. And so we would go around, I would play the steward in, in uh, Into the Woods. And so, you know, I, I have a flair for the dramatic, but it's, it's really more, um, I guess, uh, just, the dramatic in general yeah but uh i don't know i mean i've been told before maybe i should take up acting um it would probably be very very useful you know the longer i languish the more it's like okay so what barriers can i break what ground can i uh break uh having my condition and going to hollywood or doing something related to acting but uh, no, I, I think that it's, uh, it's very useful. It's very interesting. And I, I'm, I'm glad that if we ever have a production of, what, of What's My Line, uh, we'll, we'll have uh, you as uh, the person doing all the improv. <laughs> no, whose line is it anyway? Right. Yeah. That's, be that's called. probably... <laughs> Yeah. Whose line is it anyway, Nate? Hey, yeah, I think that would probably be one of the few shows that I could try out for. But yeah. um, hey, if any casting directors are listening to our show or anybody that, you know, works in the film industry, you might want to take a look at some of Merrick's tapes because uh, that guy, he brings a lot to the table. Yeah, well... I, I uh, I'll, I'll say that I have limited range, <laughs> but if you, if you want me to, um, let's see if, uh, what ways can I humiliate myself for the purposes of theatrical entertainment? I don't know. Maybe we better skip to the next question. <laughs> yeah. Maybe we should <laughs> skip to the next question. Okay. So um, I know that, everyone talked about a certain moment for the Oscars, but um, <laughs> what impact does a film like Coda winning Best Picture and Tori Coetzer winning Best Supporting Actor do for the disabled community? And do you see it as pulling more people, including individuals of autism, to play roles that were written for characters with their conditions? Yeah, I'm hearing your question and, you know, you brought up maybe another important event that happened and you know, nothing's coming to mind. So I, yeah. 
What what is I thought, it? I have no idea what it is. Yeah, I thought that this was the most important moment uh, by far with Coda winning and also Troy Coatser winning Best Supporting Actor. I think that, uh, you know, you, you made this point and it was also made in our interview uh, that, that we did earlier. And, uh, you know, <laughs> it just kind of intuitively makes sense that people with a certain disability would be more adept and maybe, you know, would have emotional experiences uh, dealing with that disability that would, would put them in a really unique situation to be successful playing those roles. And, and of course, it doesn't have to be automatic, but there should certainly be consideration and be an opportunity there. Um, of course, you know, they're, they're really thrilling um, acting performances that involve, you know, someone playing someone without a disability playing somebody with a disability, you know, that allows a person to really showcase a range of acting abilities. But you could say that the, the same would be true for someone with a disability, um, you know, playing, portraying somebody without a disability. So I, I would say the whole point of this is um, I don't, I do think this, this win can be monumental um, for roles that revolve around someone with autism and people taking more careful consideration to allow uh, people with autism the chance to audition for those roles and ultimately obtain them. You know, roles like um, a typical, um, there was a movie I saw recently called The Night Clerk. Um, it was a pretty good thriller where the main character had autism, um, just those roles in general. So I, I think it could be very helpful, but, um, yeah, I, I don't think it, it has to be, there shouldn't be any rules in the matter, right? It should be, you know, based on, on someone's, um, you know, ability to, to play the role the right way. Yeah. I mean, Daniel Day-Lewis did a great job playing, you know, a character who had a disability in my left foot. And he did quite a good job. And you really, really felt for that character. And you felt like Daniel Day-Lewis in his performance was either empathizing with that person or basically became that per had that person's disability. So it's, it's really, you know, it, I, I think that roles should be available uh, to anyone who wants to play it. And, you know, it shouldn't, there shouldn't be such a big divide between, you know, what is considered representation versus what is considered, uh, you know, someone who can pour their heart and soul into creating an empathetic experience right because what you want is you want people empathy drives the machine we call life and empathy drives the locomotive you know to to where we have to go next and if we lose sight of empathy and we just become a 
society in which only certain people can play certain roles because of this puritanical need to fulfill something um that can maybe leave uh leave life a little bit lacking and it may also keep people from being able to feel greater empathy in the professions that they choose in a creative way so i i really do appreciate people you know being accurate in their representation but it's really not a big deal for me it's it's like that music controversy and uh maybe surprising some i didn't really feel like the portrayal of a nonverbal autistic woman uh i i didn't really feel like that not only was it not outlandish to me it was actually very very convincing to me and it, it really wasn't, you know, that far off either. And I know that the actress who portrayed her um, didn't have autism, but, you know, that, that wasn't something that I was going to level against the movie for. Um, it, it just, you have to, it's like I, I would always say, um, you know, where's the middle ground in all this? And I, I think that that is important to take heed on. So, all right. Um, so do you have anything you want to say before we let ourselves go? <laughs> I hope we're not firing ourselves. Out of a cannon. <laughs> there we go. Uh, no, I I really like the topics of the episode. I hope it was interesting for our listeners. And um, you know, if you uh, if those listening at home have any questions um, about the topics or, or any comments to add, um, you know, maybe we'll we'll put our email addresses in the show notes. Uh, for today so that people could could share comments or questions yeah doesn't really matter what you send if you want to send us hate mail you want to send me hate mail that's completely fine <laughs> yeah if you have hate mail uh, please direct it to to Merrick's email yeah just direct it to me I'll take all responsibility <laughs> so all right well thanks for a good show Yep. So before we go, we want to thank the foundation for believing in us to be able to do a podcast for any willing listeners. And because of that, we will be seeing you again in May with some more coverage on us and the autistic community in general. So as we usually do for Fly. I'm 
Art is a butterfly without any colors But what's beautiful is what's inside Maybe a moth is just a butterfly trying to hide Well I'm just a caterpillar crawling around Knowledge in my head but my feet on the ground Soon I'll be like an angel in the sky Like a butterfly I wish that I could fly so high Oh like a butterfly I fly into the air so high Oh like a butterfly like a bird, I was meant to soar I will fly through the sunlight and even when it pours You can't stop me when I get a hold of the wind In the future your eyes will light up To think that I was once a poor caterpillar Will grow up and take to the sky Like a flock of butterflies I wish I could fly so high Now I can fly so high Cause I'm a butterfly